0: Hey everybody, uh, thanks for tuning in to pay attention to our story. Uh, this sermon we're talking about our Anabaptist uh, portion of our DNA. And I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer before you watch the video. I do poke a little bit of fun at the Mennonites in particular, and Amish and Hutterites. And uh, I don't mean that uh, in any way to be offensive, but it is part of... Uh, our history as a church and it's also part of my personal history and so I I felt the liberty to do that but the last thing we want to do at SunWest is to make any group of people uh, feel like they are not a part of us or we're ostracizing anybody that's just that wasn't the intent so I hope you'll hear it with the spirit that it was done in Uh, and thanks for joining us on the journey how's everybody doing awesome thank you for uh, being here for joining us uh, as we journey through our story And you might not, you might think this isn't my story. Uh, I've only this is only my second time, my third time. Uh, the reason we're doing this series, our story, reading the past and writing the future, is because uh, whatever story that God is writing in us, through us, uh, I believe He's calling us to write it together. But where we come from, our past, uh, impacts uh, who we are, how we live out our story, what's true of you individually in your past. You have highlights, you have lowlights, you have. Uh, things uh, that have shaped you. What's true individually is also true corporately. That we as a faith community, we as a church, SunWest, have had parts of our history uh, that shape who we are today and I believe who God is calling us to be uh, as we move forward. And so whether you're here for two weeks or 20 years, uh, I believe that God's inviting us to live out a story together, but it is impacted by where we come from. Uh, So... We have, over the last couple of weeks, looked at the parts of SunWest DNA. Uh, we are evangelical, charismatic, and a Baptist. And we talked the first week about evangelical. The root word is euangelion. Everybody say euangelion. Which means good news, which gospel, which is where we get the word uh, evangelism from. And at the very heart of SunWest was this desire to be Uh, to be seeker-sensitive, to be a place where people could know and find Jesus for the first time, no matter their story. And it's been uh, kind of a mantra at SunWest since the very beginning that we don't care uh, where you've been, but we care where you're going. It doesn't matter your background story. Uh, Jesus invites us all into a new story with Him. And so at the very heart of who we are as a church is this desire to have people encounter Jesus in a fresh way, maybe for the first time, but maybe in a new way. Part of our story also, because we did that, sometimes as we look back, we realize that uh, maybe in an effort to be t- too relevant, we we maybe simplified or watered down the countercultural message of Jesus in the process at times. Uh, and so we want to be radically, G- radically about following Jesus, uh, but we also want to uh, do things in a way that is accessible for everybody, no matter what your story is, no matter what your background is. And so we invite you on the journey with us. Uh, The second week we looked at the charismatic, which comes, uh, which we talked about the Greek word pneuma. Everybody say pneuma. And pneuma means breath, means spirit, means wind. And from the beginning of the biblical story all the way to the end of the story, we see that God is spirit and his spirit is breathing, actually breathing life uh, into his creation. He creates. And he breathes life into us. We saw that in Adam, uh, when, when God created Adam and Eve, he breathed physical life into them. But the Bible also tells about spiritual life. And that although we might be physically alive, uh, we can be spiritually dead. And so uh, Jesus uses these two words, zoe and bios. Bios means biology, that we are all physically alive. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're fully alive, which is what the life word for zoe, what zoe means that God desires for us all to thrive, not just survive. So some of you are getting through the day. You're breathing. You're alive. You're working. you're, You're just moving day to day, week to week, month by month, but you feel like you're surviving, and God wants more for you. God wants you to live a full and purposeful life, the life he designed you to live, and that's part of SunWest's story as well, inviting people to life full of the Spirit, that they would experience the freedom that God would bring, uh, that He would breathe into us to make us fully alive. So that was the last two weeks. If you want to hear more about it, you can, they're online. Uh, we're talking about Anabaptists this morning. Before I get there, Mennonite. What a word. Did, did you guys know when you walked into the church this morning, you walked into a Mennonite church? Uh, how, how, how many of you, how many of you is that like the first, like the, that's the first you've heard of that? That's, is that, is that a frightening idea? So some of you are just like, okay, what cult did I walk into? Uh, this is your chance. You can leave. Uh, but I don't know what you think of when you think of Mennonite. We are, we're a Mennonite brethren church. That's the, that's a part of the denomination of the church family that we come from. It doesn't define us, but it is an important part of our DNA and what. Uh, what makes us who we are. So I don't know what you think of when you think of Mennonite. Maybe you have like a picture of a guy who looks something like this, or like guys that all wear the same uniform. Uh, like should we, should we have a church uniform that we show up on Sunday with, or, or ladies that wear the same uniform? Or maybe uh, if, you, if you have some Mennonite uh, background or experience, you might think of food, like pierogies, like... Uh, like, growing up, pierogies was my favorite food. I remember in Bible college, I was surviving on craft dinner until I realized that pierogies were equally easy to make. Not handmade. I still bought them in the store, put them in a boiling pot of water, and just took a tub of sour cream and dumped it on my plate. And this was beautiful dorm room food. Um, love pierogies. Or pasca. We have, we, uh, at Easter, sometimes at SunWest, we, we have pasca, uh, which is just really like... Dessert bread uh, that is amazing. Uh, roll kuchen, I maybe you've had roll kookin Often served with watermelon. Uh, that was a staple in my life growing up. I loved roll Uh You know, the people have it in different ways. You can put sugar on it. Some people dip it in Rogers Golden syrup. Uh, some people put jam on it. Uh, it's if you're wondering what it's just fried dough. Is basically what it is. Uh, you know, there's Vareniki, uh, which wasn't uh, which wasn't something that I ate a lot of uh, growing up, but it is, uh, I've heard a lot about it. So I don't know what you picture. Picture someone, you know, couples that look like this, old school, guys that look uh, like Dwight Schrute and his brother Moe's on Schrute Farms. Uh, you know, you have that Amish kind of Mennonite thing going on. It's like, maybe that's what Mennonite is. I don't know, or guys that look like this. Uh, the, and you're like, oh, now that now that you mentioned, I see it. You guys are more Mennonite than I thought you were. Um, I mean, he's pretty young to be considered fully Mennonite, but uh, you know, uh, what if he looked. At? <laughs> now, now he's looking the part. Just give it a few years. Our youth pastor Colton'll, he'll come around. He'll come around. Now, we don't look like that. We don't necessarily even eat those food. But, you know, although I did take a picture of our men's mountain biking group that runs on Saturdays. And uh, (laughs) after I looked at it, I was like, you know what? I think we're more Mennonite than I thought we were. So I don't know what you think of when you think of Mennonite. Uh, I don't actually find the word that helpful. That's why I don't often use it. Uh, because people have all these ideas that, you know, Mennonites is a type of food or a type of dress or a type of, uh, you know, cult or community that is isolated from the rest of the world. I, I, I'm going to choose to use the word Anabaptist. Uh, and Anabaptist actually speaks to what's, what's behind that. And, and so the things that we just mentioned, you know, Amish, Hutterites, Mennonites... Uh, you know, there's a, there's a denomination called the Brethren in Christ, they, uh, and, and there's others. They, they kind of fit under the umbrella of anabaptism. And so what is that? I mean, I look at those names, and I'm like, that, that's a weird crew of people to be associated with. You know, you're, you're brave for showing up. But if you look at the definition of Mennonite, this is what it says. A Protestant sectarian of a radical movement ar- arising in the 16th century and advocating the baptism and church membership of adult believers only, non-resistance when it comes to war, and the separation of church and state. So Wikipedia actually did a pretty good job. They, uh, uh, they, they, they zeroed in on it. Uh, I want to I go back really quickly. If you, if you can... Be patient with me. In order to understand what this anabaptism is actually about and then consequently what influence it has on us, we've got to go back a little ways. And so if we go all the way back to the beginning of the church, the early church, on the day of Pentecost, we see this in Acts 1 and 2. Last week we talked about the, the spirit, the breath of God. The breath of God actually comes in Acts 2, breathes this zoe life, this full life into the early church. And these followers of Jesus were meeting in an upper room and they were praying and they were waiting uh, for the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit came and, and 3,000 people at that time uh, approximately uh, were added to the number of the early church. And that was like kind of the birth of the church that we see uh, in the story of Acts in our New Testament. And for the next 250 years of church history, Christians were seen as people who lived lives visibly in obedience to Jesus, this Jesus who they accepted as their teacher, they accepted Him as their Savior, that He had saved them from their sins, saved them from the past, and He had, uh, and they also accepted Him as their Lord, that He was the one that they were going to follow. He was their King. And many people called these followers of Jesus, these disciples of Jesus, and disciples just means uh, to image Jesus or to, to mirror Him. They called them followers of the way, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And they say, These are followers of the way. They live life according to the way that Jesus called them to live. According to Acts, they were transformed people who met in each other's homes, who shared their possessions freely. And as time passed, they welcomed new believers regardless of their race, their class, uh, or their place of origin. It became this inclusive community that was available to all. Now, I've talked about this a few times, but it's a significant part because it, it, it gives context to where we are. Constantine uh, was a politician and emperor of the Roman Empire uh, from 306 to 337. During a battle, he claimed to see a vision of the cross with the Greek words above it, in this sign, conquer. And he won that battle, and so he believed that God gave him favor. The Christian God had given him favor uh, to to conquer. And so he made uh, Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Up until this point, for 250 years, the church uh, was experiencing extreme forms of persecution. But now they didn't have to experience that anymore because the, uh, you know, the whole culture actually got behind uh, this Christian God. In time, Constantine became not only the head of the growing Roman Empire, but also the head of the expanding church. Millions of people, including people of wealth and influence, became Christian. Everybody do this. Christian during this time. As more members were gained through military conquests, more and more people became Christian. Even those who had no desire to do so. I don't even want to be a Christian, but I was conquered, and they told me that's what I am, so I am. So as a result, instead of the church being in the world, too often the world came into the church. And that's how I would kind of define Christendom, which is, refers to this time period uh, that Constantine kind of initiated Christians went from being in the world to actually the world uh, coming into the church. In earlier years, believers met in small groups. Now with the expansion of the church, they met in large church structures that had been commissioned and built uh, by people that Constantine ordered to do that and those who followed him. Instead of emphasizing the need for believers to follow Jesus in daily life, prominence was given to religious doctrine the mystical experience, to the forgiveness of skin, sins and skins. Uh got to watch out for those skins. But the, the, the focus actually became uh, less about how we lived and just more about ha- having right standing with God, this vertical relationship. Little emphasis was placed on believers being inwardly transformed to think, feel, and act like Jesus their Lord. As a result, people came to be judged more by the uniformity of their beliefs than by the lives that they actually lived. So this is the Christendom period, and this was kind of just blown up even more because of Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to define his name, who some consider the greatest theologian in Western church, but his teachings uh, impacted the Western church greatly. Because of his teaching, the church began to focus more on Christ's death and what his death did than on how Jesus lived. The teaching actually focused on the fallen nature of humanity, that we're sinful, terrible people, and because of that, we need Jesus. Uh, And up until that point, it's true. But Augustine's teaching and those that came after him basically taught that transformation wasn't a part of the Christian journey that it was actually about having a transaction that we who were guilty are no longer guilty because of what have Jesus done, and now we, how we live doesn't matter anymore. And that type of thinking was, was propped up by theologians like Augustine and some others. And so for the first 25, 250 years, there was persecution. After Christendom, there was fancy buildings financed by government. And through the Mid- Middle Ages... Most people believed that ordinary individuals could not live as Jesus had lived. So this went on for a thousand years. Although relig- religious leaders placed more and more emphasis on prayer and forgiveness of sins, on mora- the, the idea of morality and right living was actually thrown aside. So for a, thousand, for a thousand years, he had people that were claiming to be Christian because of an idea that... Uh, that because of Jesus, we were in vertical right standing with God, but it actually made no impact on the way that they lived. And so this introduces us to the Reformation. In 1517, you know, the guy, you see picture there is Martin Luther, but there was lots of guys behind the the, the Reformation, but he was kind of the key figure in it. The political world and church became one and the same, as I said. Your status in the world was tied to your status in the church. Church leaders started... You know, allowing people to pay for indulgences. So if you wanted to suffer less in eternity, you could actually pay a little bit more money. If you wanted to make sure that your, your, in, your, uh, your in-laws uh, suffered less, you could pay more money. If you wanted to make sure your in-laws suffered more, maybe <laughs> some of you wanted to do that, uh, maybe you'd withhold. But, but anyways, the, there, there became this arrangement that people, by their participation in religious activity, could pay off God. Can you imagine if we had that kind of a motivation today? We, would, you know, we wouldn't struggle to come up with a capital campaign money. We could just say, hey, your, your eternity depends on it. But we don't do that here uh, for good reasons. But this is the type of thing that was happening. Martin Luther had issue with this. And when he read and studied the scriptures, he saw that no man, no man had a quarter market on God, that God was actually available to Everyone. And so, for the church to present a gospel that had to be purchased, or people had to jump through religious hoops, he just, as he read the scriptures, he's like, "That's, that's actually not what I see." And so he came out of that. Uh, he he kind of proposed this idea in the in the Reformation, the, the five alone's or the five solas in Latin: Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And and those type of that that basic idea: faith alone, Scripture alone. Grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, really has marked uh, the Western church. Now, I, I've, I've talked about this quite a bit, if you've been around Sun West up until into, up into this point, uh, but I haven't talked about the next part of the Reformation. Now, the Reformation tried to reform what was happening in the church from within. Everybody say, from within, this is an important thing to understand if we're going to understand Anabaptism. So Martin Luther had no desire to separate church and state. He had no desire to actually do something in, different or outside of the church. He said, let's just try and reform it from within. But the Reformation itself did little to change the Christendom framework. It only divided up territories and offered different various versions of Christianity. Uh, but the, the thing that it was trying to address was left unchanged. There was a group at that time uh, that that started a movement that would be known as the Radical Reformation. So Martin Luther tried to reform the church from within. The Radical Reformers said, thought there was no possible way that we can truly follow Jesus and follow who who was ever on top of the political world at the time. That these two things are in competition. With each other, the separation of church and state had to happen if the church was actually going to recover this radical movement that we saw in acts two so Anabaptism began breaking out in all sorts of different places there wasn 't it 's a little hard to, to pinpoint who started it or where it started because it started at a simultaneous time in Switzerland and South Germany, Moravia, and the Netherlands, and there was lots of different places where this movement started to to spring up. There wasn't one place or one leader or one beginning of the movement. It was a unique thing that was happening that God was doing in His Spirit, through His Spirit, at various points, at various places at the same point in time. Menno Simons, that's the guy that's pictured there. So you're wondering where the name Mennonite comes from. One of those Anabaptist leaders' name was Menno Simons. Uh, he was a leader in the Netherlands, and that's where the name Mennonite comes from. So they, they, they came to believe that the church should be uh, composed of people that took responsibility and wanted to follow Jesus with their lives. That the mark of a Christian was someone who decided to actually follow Jesus in the way that they were living. And so they they became a persecuted group of people because they, started, they, they chose to live a rebellious life apart from the church, apart from state, and they started to do something different. And anabaptism uh, comes, uh, the meaning of it means to be baptized again. Because in, in the church system up until that point, uh, because, it was a, because your choice didn't matter, it was just really about becoming a citizen of the kingdom and of the state, uh, they just baptized infants but the radical reformers said, well, it actually matters what you choose. And so they chose to be rebaptized, to be baptized again as adults. And because of that choice, many of them lost their lives. So, what happened over time is they, they were trying to find pockets uh, where they could practice this radical faith. And uh, world wars actually made that really difficult. And so, that's why we had Mennonites spread over. Uh, and other Anabaptist groups start to spread over, over all over the world uh, in North America included. So when we talk about Anabaptism, we are not talking about a type of food. we're not talking about a type of clothing, a type of uh, you know uniform, or anything like that. We are actually talking about a radical decision to follow Jesus in daily life. That is at the heart of what anabaptism is. So when you even think about Mennonite food, I'll tell you what, that dish on your left is just as Mennonite as the dish on your right. Roll cooking is no more Mennonite than butter chicken. It's true. In fact, there's no more Mennonites in India than there is uh, than we have here in Canada. Mennonites is not a food. Anabaptism is not, it's not, it's not a type of food or a type of, uh, like I said, uniform. It's a way of life. So this is why I prefer to talk about the word anabaptism and not the word Mennonite, because when people hear the word Mennonite, they start to think all sorts of things. So anabaptism. So what does this mean, to actually be Anabaptist. Next week we're going to talk about what it means to be evangelical, charismatic, Anabaptist altogether. together. What does that even mean for us collectively? What does it mean individually or specifically to be Anabaptist? Well, the first one is Jesus is the center. And you might think, duh, you're a church. Jesus is supposed to be the center. Don't, don't assume that just because there's a religious gathering that Jesus is the center. Don't take that for granted. Jesus is the center of everything in Anabaptism. Everything. And so, if we even think about the Bible, the Word, there's lots of Christian groups that approach the Bible very differently. So some people approach the Bible like like it's flat, the flat Bible. You have the Old Testament, you got Moses, David, the prophets, and the New Testament. You got Jesus, you got Paul, you got John. Everybody is just the same, and all Scripture is the same. And so they, they, they open the Word and they say uh, it's all flat. It's all equally authoritative. And, and the whole goal is to, is to actually to hold everything equally. There's a lot of churches uh, and Christian denominations that would teach this kind of idea. And so uh, out of that, they try and create systems of belief that hold all these things together. Now, I'm not saying that's invalid. It's just different. It's just different than Anabaptism. It's just different than being Jesus-centered in our approach to Scripture. Another way that that many people approach the Bible is dispensational approach, and that's just a really fancy way of they kind of divide history into sections. You have the promise, the Mosaic law. You have this little section that Jesus plays in the middle uh, and then you have the age of the church or the age of grace, and then there 's going to be a millennial rule at some point, and God kind of acts and reveals himself differently through each of these dispensations so there 's many uh, people who are Christians that approach the Bible this way, but for us to be christ centered in our approach to scripture, basically. Says that we believe the whole point of the written word was to reveal the living word. John 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John is saying in John chapter 1 that the word, the logos, which is the Greek word, was not a book, it was not physical words on a page. It was actually God Himself who existed in the beginning, and then John later says that the Word became flesh and made His home among us. And so, as we approach Scriptures, we actually approach it in a Jesus-centered approach, that the whole story is going somewhere, from Abraham, Moses, David, and all the prophets, that, that the whole. Reason that the Lord gave us this revelation of his written word was to reveal the living word. Anabaptists have a high regard for scripture. In fact, they were often called people of the book. But they have an even higher regard for Jesus. Jesus even more than the Bible is their final authority. Jesus more than Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, Peter, John, other people important characters in the biblical story, they all exist to actually glorify and uplift Jesus. And so in some ways, to be Jesus-centered in our approach to Scripture, to be, what I would say, Anabaptist in our approach to Scripture, is actually we, to open ourselves to being accused of having a, the, a Scripture within the Scriptures, to having a canon within the canon, because the Anabaptists would look at the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that start your New Testament, and they would say these are actually central to the written word. And they would give emphasis to that even over other parts of the Bible. And even within those Gospels, they would would give emphasis to the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew, which is really telling people how to live out their lives in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, the living word, is the center of Scripture. So when you come to Sun West on a Sunday and our mission statement says to guide all people into lifelong and authentic relationship with Jesus, and I talk over and over again about Jesus, it's not just by chance, it's not just because we're Christian, it's also because we have a radical belief that Jesus is the center of everything. Which also means that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so when we think back to some of those Goofy-looking Anabaptist groups, those Hutterites and Mennonites and Amish folks. You think of horse and buggy. Anybody have that image when they think? I didn't have one of those. But you think of a horse and buggy, you think of those, those uniforms, those overalls, those beards. You think of no technology. Um, so let me just say from the outset that that's just weird, okay? They, 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 they got it wrong. Uh, but, but if you understand the heart behind it, the reason that that happened was because they believed that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was King, and that they were called to live in citizenship in the kingdom of God under the lordship of Jesus, not in the kingdoms of this world. And so sometimes they misunderstood maybe what being a part of the kingdom of this world meant. I can't drive a car. I can't have technology. You know, I can't have a fashion sense. I don't know. Uh, but, but the heart, the heart behind it was, actually, I want to be in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of this world. I want my life to be oriented in priority around what Jesus desires for me. Obviously, when that goes sideways, that, that becomes legalism if, it, if, if it's not attached to the heart of where it started from in the first place. But the kingdom theology behind it was that Jesus is Lord. And so at the heart of the Anabaptist approach, Jesus is the center, but Jesus is also king. Jesus is also Lord, and I live my life in submission to him as king. So most of the Christian world believed, like I said, in this vertical aspect of faith, but the Anabaptists believed that there was no such thing as a vertical aspect without a horizontal aspect. You actually, following God or being right with God, actually had an impact on our behavior horizontally in the world around us. And so there was an emphasis on community, there was emphasis on small groups, uh, partly because they were persecuted and they weren't meeting in large gatherings, so they had to meet in homes and smaller groups. There's an emphasis on forgiveness. You know, they believed that uh, if you were unable to forgive your brother and sister, that it actually limited the forgiveness that God was giving you. That we can't be an unforgiving people and expect that God would forgive us. There was an emphasis on accountability because following Jesus wasn't just about a vertical spiritual relationship it actually had to impact the way that we lived and so there was an accountability on how do we go about living and following God Jesus said the love the lord your god with all your whole heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself they believed that these two were connected and couldn't be separated the love of your neighbor is the litmus test for the love of God The love of your neighbor is the litmus test for the love of God, and the love of your enemy is the litmus test for the love of your neighbor. Let that sink in just for a second. The love of your neighbor is the litmus test for the love of God, and the love of your enemy is the litmus test for the love of your neighbor. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about loving the least of these. I've heard someone say that you actually can only love Jesus as much as you love the least of these. It starts to radically change how we think about our behavior in a horizontal way. Jesus is Lord. Jesus isn't just Savior. Jesus didn't just save me from my sins, although that happened. Jesus is also King and because he's king i live under his authority and that changes the way i live in my horizontal life and jesus is our example and this is similar to the previous one jesus is lord but there is a distinction and this distinction is important like i said not just jesus just didn't save us jesus actually came to transform us and james james says faith by itself it, if it has no works is dead faith. If if you believe in God, if you believe in this vertical part of your faith, that's great. But if it has no bearing on your horizontal world, then it's meaningless. That's what it says in James. Peter says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. Jesus didn't die on a cross so you and I don't have to he went to the cross and then he told us to follow him. You see the difference? Jesus believed that this posture of self-sacrificial love for the enemy was what was going to change our world. The mistake that Christendom made and that the Reformation made was that it was just about this vertical relationship that I could live however I wanted but as long as Jesus saved me And that was all that that was was all the gospel was about. But the Anabaptist group believed that God wanted the kingdom of heaven to actually come to earth, and that we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven now, which means that we don't live like the world lives. We don't fight like the world fights. We don't resort to violence like the world resorts to violence to solve their problems. We have a different type of kingdom. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could live however we want. He didn't die on the cross so we don't have to. Jesus died on the cross and then told us to pick up our cross and follow him. And I believe the promise is that when we follow him to the cross, in the same way that we follow him in his death, we will also share with him in his resurrection. It's the same journey through suffering, through hardship. Not to take our eyes off Jesus, but to follow him wherever he's leading us, no matter what that means. And so as a result of this, many Anabaptists died for their faith. And I don't mean died for their beliefs. They died for their actions. In August 1526, 60 leaders met in Augsburg, Germany for a missionary conference. So they came together, these leaders, these Anabaptist leaders. And only only a few years later... I think three years later, there's only two or three of them left out of those original 60 leaders. They were killed because of their beliefs, because of their faith. They were burned. They were drowned. They were hanged. More than 2,000 martyrs are known by name, and in estimates that there's four to 5,000 men, women, and children that fell prey to water, fire, and sword. They believed not just that Jesus was Lord, but the way that Jesus brought his kingdom through service, self-sacrificial love, was the way that he was inviting us to bring his kingdom to the earth as well. Not through coercion, not through violence, but through service, through love, through loving your enemy. So these leaders, these Anabaptist leaders in those in the beginning of this movement, wanted to follow the way. They wanted to imitate Jesus and how they lived. Does that make sense? There's a few people that made sense to. If the person beside you is sleeping, elbow them. So, before I move on, the the reason why that's important. You know, I'm not, I'm not a Mennonite fanboy. Uh, you know, when I look at the evangelical, charismatic, andabaptism parts of our DNA, I think all of them are important parts of who we are. Uh, I think there's a Jesus centric aspect to our history that ought to be celebrated. A radical desire to follow Jesus, whatever it means to my personal life, that ought to be pursued. I don't go back into history just for the sake of going back into history. I go back into history to say, you know, the Lord has actually put in us a legacy, an inheritance that is so rich. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of food, beige food, that we, don't, we probably shouldn't eat anymore? I mean, all that, all that food, it's all beige. Did you notice that? No color in it. Lots of dough and gravy. Now, so, so the parts that, like, just let it go. But the, the parts that we ought to hang on to is this, the centrality of Jesus and the radical decision to follow Him, no matter what the cost. In Matthew 29... Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The story is recorded in in a few different uh, gospels. And so we often think that, you know, Jesus loses his mind at this point. He comes in the temple, he starts throwing stuff around, and he's got this temper... And what's happening here in the story is people were thinking if we can keep the temple and the sacrifices going uh, here in this holy place, this religious activity, we can live however we want outside of Sunday. As long as we're going to church, as long as we're doing the the things that God requires of us to be in right standing vertically, we can live however we want. And so Jesus comes in and it looks like Jesus is losing his mind. He's just going crazy. But that's not actually what's happening In fact, in John chapter two, if you read the story in John two, it says that Jesus went and and he put together a whip. He made a whip. That takes some foresight. I don't know if you've ever made whips, but he you know he took some time to go put a whip together to craft it. He was thinking about it, and he wasn't just doing this thing as like you know Jesus needs to go to anger management type of thing. This was a reenactment. This was prophetic theater. Jesus was actually reenacting what Jeremiah did thousands of years earlier. This is the same thing Jeremiah did. What's going on in the story? In Jeremiah, chapter seven, we can read this. This is what the Lord of heavens armies uh, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land, but don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, widows. Only if you stop murdering. And only if you stop harming yourselves by worshipping idols. Then I will let you stay in this land I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Hey, pause before we keep going. Jesus is saying, just because you have the temple here, just because you have the, the center of the religious world, just because, sorry, Jeremiah is saying, just because this is, uh, you're doing all of this religious activity that you believe honors God, don't think that because you're doing this religious stuff that you're safe. Don't think that because you're doing all this stuff that you're doing what I'm asking you to do because you're actually neglecting the horizontal relationship. Stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Stop murdering. Stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think that you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours, and then come out here and stand before me in my temple and chant, We are safe! Only to go back to all those evils again. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is what Jesus is referring to in this story where he comes into the temple. He refers to it as a den of thieves. What are thieves guilty of? Stealing. Robbing. What's the opposite of a thief? The opposite of a thief is someone who produces, someone who creates. A thief steals what's not theirs. Someone who creates actually produces something. In Ephesians 4.28, it says, If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. This is a great piece of advice. If you were, do we have any thieves in the room? We got anybody robbing? Other people? It's okay. This is a safe place. We won't judge you. We want to pray for you. No, if, Ephesians is not just saying stop stealing. It's also saying stop stealing and do this. When you choose to steal, it's because you don't want to put in the work to create something for yourself. You're not just taking something from somebody else. You're choosing to steal because you're not living up to the potential which God created you for. God created us to create. God blesses us to bless. God initiates with us in, our verti- in this vertical relationship so that we will initiate with others in a horizontal relationship. The den of thieves, this idea, is referring to People that aren't taking responsibility for the mandate that God gave them to live the lives they were called to live and instead went to the temple thinking that this was an excuse for them just to stay the same. If I do this little religious activity, I can just stay the same and live life the way I'm living it. Robbers retreat to their dens to escape judgment and hide from punishment when we ne- neglect our God-given responsibility to co-work with God to help create the world He's calling us to create, to participate with Him as the kingdom of heaven becomes the kingdom of this earth, if we choose not to do that and we still participate in religious activity, we are just like these people in the story that, of Jesus and the Gospels here, and we're making church into a den of robbers. We're not actually living life the way that God is calling us to live. You guys remember these bracelets? Anybody have one? Did did anybody have one at any point? Okay. How many of you guys have never seen these bracelets before? I'm looking at the front rows here. Have you guys, have you, Dawson, have you seen this before? Okay, anybody not seen it before? Okay, Emmett, thank you. Emmett, how old are you? Fifteen. Okay, when I was fifteen... These bracelets were a big deal. There was NBA players that were wearing these bracelets. You know, they were recording rap albums and cussing every other word, but they, you know, they were, they were, they were wearing these bracelets. What would Jesus do? WWJD. It was like this big movement that happened. I had some of these bracelets. What would Jesus do? Man. It became so cliche, but I wonder if we actually move that away from cliche, we move that away from just this marketing movement to actually thinking about that question, what would Jesus do? Can you imagine, did you know that Jesus had a little brother? Did you guys know that? So James, the guy that uh, you know, just said, faith that the works is dead? Jesus, that's Jesus' little brother. Can you imagine being Jesus' little brother? Like, James, what would Jesus do? Come on. Like, that would get old really, really, really quickly, no? You know, you, th- you think the parents would just, like, throw him a bone, like, once in a while? Thank you for this food in James' name. See, I you got, you got you that one. Huh? What would Jesus do? It's not, when we say that we're a Christian, we're a follower of Jesus, this should actually be the primary question that we're asking. And everyone has a role to play in the kingdom of God. Every person that says, I'm a follower of Jesus, should be asking this question, what would Jesus do? Not, what has Jesus done for me, but what would Jesus do, and let me follow him in action horizontally. And so, What does this mean for us? You know, this is not just a looking past in the past series. This is a looking forward series. I believe that SunWest needs to identify anchor causes. We can't do everything. But we can do something. You know, Mark chapter 1, Jesus was off praying in a solitary place, and the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. And do you know what he responded by saying? He said, let's go somewhere else. Jesus knew that there was only so many things that he could do. And if Jesus had to create boundaries, if Jesus couldn't answer every need in the world, why do we think that we can? We can't, but we do need to identify what are the things that God is calling us to do. In Mark chapter 1, again, before Jesus was found and was told, Everybody's looking for you, what was he doing? He was sitting in a solitary place praying asking God what he wanted him to do. And then when the disciples came, he wasn't distracted by the needs around him. He was actually had a focus that the Holy Spirit gave him to be about the things that his father told him to be about. What is it that God is calling us to be about? What are we called to do? When we think locally in Calgary, one of the, and I don't have an answer for this. I, I'm inviting us into maybe some prayerful reflection on this. There's lots of good things to do in our city. And we can't do them all, but Son of Us, we need to do something. We need to have an anchor cause. You know, we, we, we've, we have some resources going to our ELL ministry and New Canadians. We, there's been conversations around prison ministries or First Nation ministries or ministry uh, with the homeless or, uh, or working with people that have addictions or helping uh, families uh, that are split or broken. Uh, you know, we, we may not be able to do everything, but I believe that there's an anchor cause that the Lord wants us to think about as a family, what is the thing that He's calling us to do? Not just to gather on a Sunday and say, hey, we're doing church vertically. No, what does what the horizontal peace look like for us as a family of God who are following Jesus? What does this look like nationally? I don't know what the answer is nationally. Um, and th- this is the, probably the least of my concerns right now as I ask the question, but I do think Locally, nationally, internationally, we, we need to have a sense of anchor causes. Lord, what is our Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth? What, what are you calling us to invest in? Internationally, we have some people in El Salvador uh, right now. We, we have anchor causes internationally that we have identified. And I think God is calling us to actually reinvest our energy, our focus into these causes that he has actually been doing in us and through us for years. But we haven't maybe been as focused on them as we can be. El Salvador, Thailand, Myanmar, Myanmar. We have, uh, we have missionaries there that we support. Dave and Louise, Louise Sinclair Peters. I talked about this a few weeks ago. We haven't sent missions team there in a decade. We support them. They're planting churches. There's people coming to faith there but we haven't gone and partnered with them in a physical way. We've been sending them a check, but what does it mean for us as a body to actually re-engage internationally? Partners Relief and Development is at work there. We had Steve Gumer, who was here a few weeks back, sharing about that. Working with refugees who are fleeing for their lives. We have Mexico. How many of you guys are going to Mexico this year? You're going to the Mexico meeting this afternoon? Nobody! Anybody going to Mexico this year? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Okay, we got one at the back. We have built 132 houses in Mexico as SunWest. 132 houses. Yes. Let me pause this here for one second. How many of you guys are Flames fans, or Rough Rider fans, or football fans, or hockey fans? Okay, put up your hand. Okay, how many of you guys are like me and you lose your mind when your team does awesome. You you're like me, right? Okay. So, I I'm not I'm not guilt tripping here. I'm just I'm just assessing our culture here for a second. We are followers of Jesus, Jesus Lord. We are primarily citizens of his kingdom. And we're participating in things like seeing churches planned in Thailand, 132 houses uh, that have been built through us. And I got one person that clapped. I go to a Flames game or a Stampeders game, and we go crazy when we get the football in the end zone more than the other team. I mean, I love it just as much as anybody Um, but I have to wonder, I have to wonder if God is calling us to reprioritize mission, and and, and it shows up even in how we celebrate things. Now, I'm just as guilty as anybody. I'm not uh, just pointing fingers, but there's 132 homes that we as a community got to build for people that didn't have anything. Yeah. And here's one story. This was a more post of this. On their website, just a week ago, our team recently visited Alicia and and the Bernal Martinez family who received in a more house nearly 10 years ago. This is their story. 10 years ago, my brother-in-law and his wife had just passed away in a car accident. So we, so we brought our three nephews to come live with us. It was too crowded in our home and our roof would leak whenever it rained. That's when a pastor came to visit us and offered to build us a house. Our new house came at the perfect time so that I could care for my nephews. My goal as a mother is to continue loving them as my own children. Our new home has been a place of refuge for us. Thank you to SunWest Church for helping make this possible for the Brunel Martinez family back in 2009 and for your continued partnership. That's just one story of 132 stories, and that's just in Mexico. We have similar stories in El Salvador. And I think SunWest needs to re-engage passionately with what we're called to do internationally and bring our focus into the places that he's called us to be. I think we need to do the same thing locally. We need to be telling these stories not just thousands of miles away, but a block away, a community away. What are the stories of transformation that God wants to tell through our story? What would Jesus do? I'm not saying that to be cliche. I'm definitely not saying it to be trendy because it was back in the 90s. So you know I'm not saying it to be trendy. But this was a question that drove the early church. This was a question that drove the Anabaptist movement. If this is about pierogies. I don't want anything to do with it, even though I love pierogies, but if it's about radically following Jesus and doing what he's calling us to do, then I want everything to do with it. And this is a question that needs to be driving us as a community. I end again with the 1,589 word mission statement, vision statement, and I want to highlight a couple of things that we have been pursuing and reflecting on over these last couple of years. The church I see. I see a church that is overcoming vertigo and disequilibrium by keeping Jesus, his great commandment and great commission, in the center. And by the grace of God, I see a church that will do whatever it takes to participate in the mission of God for our community, our city, our nation, and our world. We won't be tempted by milk and honey, reference to the Old Testament story there, because we know we're blessed to be a blessing. The church I see understands that going might mean just staying where you are with some intentionality. The church I see sees itself as the intersection of mission, that God wants to do something here and now. The church I see invests in the lives of business people, schools, communities, because the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. That's the promise we see in His Word. The church I see is a church of resident aliens. The church I see is a church that makes its home in a community in the same way that Jesus made His home among us. Jesus is not just our Savior, He's also our Lord and our example. I see a church that understands that its citizenship is in heaven, but that God's plan is to bring His kingdom to earth. The church I see is a church that understands that God's church doesn't have a mission, but God's mission has a church. And I see a church that chooses the discomfort of mission over the comfort of maintenance. One of my major fears when we moved into a new space was that we would just go into maintenance mode. And I am praying that God would make us dis- uncomfortable. He would make us uncomfortable because we are courageously going outside of our comfort zones because they're calling us into mission. We're blessed to be a blessing. The church I see is a church that has babies with no hair, Elders with no hair. Can I get an amen? Um, Brent L. Hanson. If you don't know who Brent L. Hanson is, he's the guy with the shiny head over here on on my right. Babies, babies with no hair, elders with no hair, and everyone in between. The church I see is full of followers of Jesus that realize they are building something that will outlast them. Because of this, they will choose the path of legacy, which is marked by sacrifice. This was the heartbeat of the Anabaptist movement a legacy that's marked by sacrifice. It is a church that when having to choose between legacy or luxury, it's going to choose legacy every single time. I believe that this is the church that God is calling us to be, not just a church that's focused on the vertical, although that's critically important. But we see the heart of God throughout Scripture is actually for your faith to move you out horizontally and be a change agent in this world for His kingdom and His glory. I'm going to invite you to stand. And as we sing this final song, it's singing about being awoken from our slumber. It's a bit of an energetic song. And we we just learned it this morning. But I would invite you not just to sing the song vertically, not just to think, hey, this is a nice moment here at church and now I'm going to go and have my lunch and get on with my day and my week. You know, God is actually wanting to interrupt your life. This vertical moment that we're having here is meant to impact your world in a horizontal sense. Jesus invites you to be part of his kingdom, to be a citizen, to be a son and daughter of the king, and then to actually live out of that identity wherever you go. Can we be a people that responds to the radical call to follow Jesus in every aspect of our lives?